next service if you do want to stick around uh, for that and to pray over those families too. Uh, please grab your Bibles, if you would, 1 Kings chapter 18. Also, an opportunity to point out the, the Church Center app. <clears throat> I hope you are using it and enjoying it, but it has all the sermon slides and notes and announcements and all the things that you can do to sign up. And so you can check that out as well as the Bible app is there and available for you as, as well. We are continuing on in our sermon series looking at uh, a remarkable man, Elijah, this, this man who who loved the Lord, who was faithful to, to obey him, who was used in tremendous ways. And, and in some ways, we could look at a story like him and say, well, how does he relate to us? And here's how, because the things that God did to train him, but also to use him are the same principles for us as followers of Jesus today. And that is that you and I would grow to learn more of what it means to trust in God, to live obedient, in obedience to God, and to live in relationship with him. Those are the attributes of a follower of Jesus, and that's what we see in Elijah, and that's why he is so relatable to us. Now, so far, we've looked at his life, and we've seen how the Lord took him into what we've called here a, a season of separation for preparation. He, he tucked Elijah away in these different places to train him, to grow his faith, really, for what was about to come, which is our text Today, today we hit the showdown. Today we hit uh, really the most famous moment in the life of Elijah and one of the most famous accounts in all of the Bible. This is gonna be one that maybe you've, you've read before, you've heard before, or you know very well. So let me get some background real quick. We're gonna pick up in verse 19 of 1 Kings 18 just to get us caught up on the lay of the land in terms of what's going on here. Here we have Elijah speaking to King Ahab. King Ahab is the leader of Israel. In verse 19 it says this, it says, now summon the people from all over Israel to meet, uh, to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And so Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Now remember, this is a season of life where Israel is an absolute dumpster fire where the king and queen, the royal couple, Ahab and his wife Jezebel, they are intentionally in an organized fashion working to move the nation of Israel, the people, away from worshiping God and to worshiping an idol, a false god named Baal. And Asherah was sort of a teamed up idol with Baal. And so this is the setting that we have Elijah working in. Our goal for today is to, is to just read through these verses that we're gonna look at here in terms of what's about to come. And, and maybe in a little bit different fashion, I just wanna let the scriptures speak for themselves. There's 21 verses we're gonna cover. So we're gonna cover a lot of Bible this morning, but we love the Bibles, so that's okay. We're gonna, cover, we're gonna cover these 21 verses. I'm gonna make a couple comments as we go. And we're gonna see how this passage is so relatable to us. And so what we just saw here again, we see Elijah, he, he sets the term for the showdown. He says to, to the king, he says, look, I want you to bring all of, all of your people. Invite anybody you wanna come. Bring all the prophets for Baal. Bring all the prophets for Asherah and, and pack the setting. We're gonna meet up on Mount Carmel. That's gonna be the setting where we're at. And so it's easy for us to imagine. It's going to be Elijah in one corner and it's gonna be a whole lot of other people in the other. You're gonna have a setting here where thousands showed up and the thousands that showed up, they're all wearing their Baal jerseys. They've all got their, I don't know, Baal is number one foamy fingers, right? Waving them in the air. They're all excited about Baal. This is gonna be Baal's day. This is gonna be Baal's triumph. How could one person over there make any difference? 
This is better than any pay-per-view, by the way. Like this would have been the talk of the, of the nation of Israel to gather to see this showdown that's about to take place on Mount Carmel. So finally, the big day arrived. We'll continue on in verse 21. It says, Elijah went before the people and he said, how long will you waver? That word waver means to stay stuck. Ever been stuck in life? Feel like you're wavering? This is what it's talking about. It's how long will you waver or stay stuck between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, we'll follow him. But the people said nothing. And their silence was loud. You can see the charge here of choose for yourself. Who are you gonna follow, the Lord or Baal? Pick one or the other. Whoever's true, whoever's real, follow that one. And the people, it's just blank stares. There's just nothing, nothing happening there. The, the, the scene would have, been, would have been awkward, I suppose. I wanna submit to you though, I don't think the crowd, which has been led astray by the king and queen, ushered into this idolatry type of worship, I don't think they understood the question. Now, I think they understood what he said, but I don't think they understood the question this way. For them, they would have had going through their mind, why do we have to choose? You see, in this day, it was okay to worship Baal, worship Asherah, worship anything else you wanna do. Line them all up if you want. The more, the better. Worship any God, worship many gods. It doesn't really matter. And so when Elijah stands up there and says, pick for yourself this binary option, the Lord or Baal, they would have said, why? We'll take them all, please. You see, the view that they had, that they were led into is a view that's alive and well today. It's called pluralism. And pluralism carries this idea. It's the idea here that you can, it's good to worship many gods or any God that you want. And here's the key. Who you choose to worship is entirely based on preference and not truth. But as truth is in decline in our country, as we are increasingly dismissing the notion or the existence of truth, it leads the way, it paves the path for pluralism to come right in. You just pick what you like. You pick what you prefer. It doesn't matter if it's actually real. It doesn't matter if it's actually true. And so when Elijah gives this question here, they would have been confused. Now, I wanna give you an illustration to show how, what this looks like. So, so you have this mountain, and this is commonly used, and the idea is you see that there are many paths and many trails in this illustration at the top of the mountain. And this is what pluralism loves to point to. They say, you know, when it comes to religion, when it comes to faith, the idea of God, it's all the same mountain. It's all the same mountain. And so it, there, there's lots of trails to get to the top, but one trail is not better than another. Sure, one might be more direct and one might be more, you know, take a little longer to get there. But the point is they all are equal in, valid, in value. They're all equally valid and they all climb to the top of the same mountain. That's pluralism. And the thing about that illustration that you're seeing behind me now or on your, on your uh, church center app, the idea here is it seems so open-minded and it seems so inclusive. It's, it seems nice to be able to communicate that, but here's the problem with the illustration. How do you know every trail gets to the top of the same mountain? The only way you can possibly know that is to have the vantage point that you are enjoying right now looking at the screen behind me. In other words, you have to have a God view. The only way you can know that every trail gets to the top is if you're all-knowing. And of course, none of us are. 
And so the whole illustration fails and pluralism fails as well to that end, which leads me to the first fill in the blank. I just wanna drive home this morning uh, on this first part where Elijah's talking to the crowd and they're not even responding to him. It's this idea that you and I, we would choose who we will worship based on true. I don't think we should choose to believe things that aren't true. Why would we? Every belief we have and ideas always have consequences. So we should choose to worship who's actually real, who's actually true. That's what we should pursue. And so for the, the Elijah, he's calling out. He says, look again, follow the one who really is God. And it's gonna be demonstrated. It's gonna be something that's empirical even. It's gonna be something that is shown to the people here in just a moment. But we don't worship just by convenience, just by preference, We should want more than that. And that's what Elijah is trying to do. And this idea, by the way, echoes throughout the Bible. Can I show you another verse here? Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, which by the way, it's printed wrong in your bulletin. That's entirely my fault. But here's what it says. Joshua speaking to the people. He says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, here it is, then choose then choose for yourself this day whom you're gonna serve. And then what the verse does is it articulates some different common responses to this, some, some, different, some different ways that people sort of naturally fall into who they choose to worship. Continue to read with me here. It, it continues, it says, whether, whether, here's option one, whether the gods your ancestors serve beyond the Euphrates. Let's pause here. In other words, he's like, look, one option is to do what a lot of people do. And that is you just sort of take on the religion or the God that your, your ancestors, your genealogy took. So you're like, my great granddad was a Baptist. My granddad was a Baptist. My dad's a Baptist. Eh, I guess I'm a Baptist. I'm a Catholic. Fill in the blank. It doesn't matter what it is. But I just, I just sort of adopt that because, not because I think it's really true, not because uh, it corresponds to reality, but, but simply because that's, that's just what we do. We just worship that way. That's what some people do today as well. And Joshua calls that out. He says, look, that is an option. Doesn't make it a good option, but that's one option. Here's another one. He says, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. This one's even more common. This is the version where it says option two now, which, which is like, look, you live in the land of the Amorites and they're all worshiping this God over here. So I guess we'll do the same thing. We just kind of go along to get along. We worship what everybody else is worshiping. And so whatever culture, and think of American culture, you can fill in the gaps of some cultural idols that America is worshiping today. We just kind of fall in line with that. Yeah, that sounds good. It works for everybody else. I think that'll be good. Again, not a good reason to choose who you will serve, who you will worship. And then Joshua gives his famous declaration. He says, but as for me, and as for my household, which by the way, we got a snapshot this morning as families came forward, and this is what they were saying this morning. This is our household we will, in the words of Joshua, we will serve the Lord. That's what we're dedicated to. That's what we're committed to. And not because we hope it's true and not because we prefer it to be true, but because we know it's true. Because God is real, because his word is inspired, inerrant, illuminated, and I can trust it. And so we, we worship the Lord for those reasons. So again, to drive home, the crowd there, they wouldn't have understood the question, but hopefully we do. And then we're very intentional. See, we all worship something or someone. We all serve something or someone that we would make a decision of dedication, all of us, not just the families on stage, to choose who we will worship. That's our first principle from our passage this morning. 
See, here's the thing. Every day, you have a choice to keep driving this home. Your next fill in the blank. You can worship the Lord of creation or worship an idol in creation. And both are vying for your heart. Every day, get out of bed. Who am I going to worship? Who has my heart? I don't want to submit to you. I don't think it's enough that he just has your heart. Does he have your life? See, it isn't just enough to say, I'll worship him at church, 9 to 10 a.m. How about when you leave? How about the other 167 hours? It isn't enough to just say, I will worship God at church or at home in private settings, but what about work and community? You know, there's this expression that culture has used and stolen, if you will, about the idea of coming out of the closet. But honestly, there's some Christians that need to do the same thing. It isn't that they don't love the Lord, it's that they stuff it away. And their private devotion never translates into public expression. It is a good thing if people know that you love the Lord. It is a good thing if people know that you, you believe in his word and strive to live it out. And I'm not talking about obnoxious. I'm not talking about in your face. I'm talking about winsome and gentle and respectful and kind and caring and leading with love in terms of building relationships that people would know who it is and what it is that actually changes who you are and how you see the world and how you live life. This is all about what we choose, worshiping the Lord of creation or an idol in creation. I hope you have made your resolve. And if you haven't this morning, we'd love a chance to talk with you more. There'd be people out here to pray with you. We would love a chance to do that, but that you would choose. Because here's the thing, if you don't choose, the choice will be made for you. So choose. Choose who you will worship. Let's continue on in the, in the passage here. So we just saw the people didn't respond, but Elijah's unfazed. He just keeps going. Let's continue on in verse 22. It says, then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us and let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire uh, to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. And I want to call it very briefly, they absolutely agreed with Elijah's terms because everything about Elijah's terms here for this big showdown played to the advantage of the Baal worshipers. And I mean Everything. So for example here, the, the Baal, let me show you a picture, by the way. This is what Baal, uh, ancient artifacts, how he was the image of Baal, if you will. In the left hand, I put an arrow there. It, it sort of looks like a stalk or something like that. What that actually is, is lightning. Baal was always demonstrated with lightning. What is this showdown all about? Lightning, fire from heaven. Like the whole terms of the setting here that Elijah set up here, Baal is the idol for rain. Lightning is his signature rod he's holding in his left hand. Like if any, if any idol can set fire to an offering, Baal's the one. They like that. I already mentioned last week, and I'll mention it again, the setting, Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is this uh, mountain. It's right on the, the sea there. You see the map. It's right on the Mediterranean Sea, 1,800 feet in elevation. And this was the epicenter for Baal worship. They had the temple in Samaria, the capital city, and they had the high place here on Mount Carmel. This was home field advantage 
for, this was home field advantage for, um, for the Baal worshipers. And there's a picture there. You can see how close it is to the ocean. Of course, it's just a picture of the mountain of where this event took place in real time and in real history. And then finally, Elijah made one other thing. He said, here's about the, the terms we're gonna do. We're gonna sacrifice a bull. Now he could have picked a lot of different animals. Why did he pick the bull? Because the bull was the image or the picture of, of Baal worship was, was sacrificing a bull. Bull was attached to Baal worship. So the fact that they even picked an animal that tied into Baal worship, everything about this played into the hands for those who worship Baal. And so the crowd, of course, they were like, yeah, we love this. And I already mentioned before, I mean, you have the crowd as 99.99% Baal worshipers. So even like the setting up there in terms of how people are talking, how people are feeling about the showdown, and you have in one corner, you have hundreds and hundreds of professional false prophets. They're in their suit and tie. They look official. They have degrees, like, right? That's the false prophets over there. And then you look over in the other corner, you got Elijah. You got a homeless guy with a ZZ top beard who hasn't showered since the third grade, right? So you've got this picture of these two different people that look so different, Anybody who was there doing color commentary for this pay-per-view would have been like, this isn't gonna go well for Elijah. This isn't gonna work. Everything, I mean, the deck is completely stacked in the favor of the Baal worshipers. But as you know, one person plus the Lord is always a majority. And let's continue on in verse 25. It says, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first since there are so many of you, and call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. And so they, uh, they took a bull, the bull, and given, to, given them and prepared it, and then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. O oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made, verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them, he says, shout louder. The idea, by the way, this is pure mockery. I mean, he's just having fun with them now at this point. But the idea here is like, look, maybe Baal's a little hard of hearing, you know? So won't you be a little bit louder uh, to help Baal out? He says, surely he is God. He says, perhaps he is deep in thought or busy. Uh, that word busy is funny. So that's the celestial men's room. Like maybe Baal is in the restroom. You know, I had some bad queso last night and he's having a tummy day or something. Like maybe he's, he's tucked away and he's indisposed and he can't actually help you out right now. He continues on, he says, maybe he's sleeping. So, you know, maybe it's nap time uh, uh, and he must be awakened. But the text is gonna continue, we're gonna keep reading, but I wanna call out, now things are about to get scary and demonic. This scene is, is, uh, is not good continues, it says, and so they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. And midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, which was three o'clock. So three hours they're doing this, cutting themselves, screaming. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid any attention or nobody paid attention. Finally, it was Elijah's turn and, and the scene couldn't be more different about how Elijah approached this scene. It, it, it's just a, a different take here. Verse 30 continues on. It says, then Elijah said to all the people, 
come here to me. And they came to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. And Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two says of seed. And he arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces. And he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. And do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. And water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. And by the way, the water, its only purpose is to show there's no trickery here. Nothing should light fire with all that water. Gallons and gallons of water they've poured over. Verse 36. And at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah, he stepped forward. And by the way, as I imagine it, I think he stepped away from the altar by faith. He stepped forward and he prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. And here's the key. So these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. I love this. I mean, he repairs the altar and yes, the water, but he steps forward and he just prays. It's simple. It demonstrates trust in God. It highlights that his desire was not that people would look at Elijah himself and say, wow, you're incredible. You're powerful. He's deflecting to the Lord that people would see you and see how amazing you are and that the hearts of the people would turn back. It's a beautiful prayer for God to be glorified. Verse 38 so we begin to wrap up this morning. It says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all these people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them. And Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley. And slaughtered there. I want to show you just a picture. This is, well, it's right there. That's the Kishon Valley. It would have been down that hill there and in that location. Again, this really happened. This is real geography, real history here that took place. What a scene. You see, God showed up. And when God shows up, you always know God showed up. And that's what we have here in this scene. I want to close our time. And we're going to worship here in a moment. But I want to close with just one, one question. Something I've been thinking about all week. Why didn't the fire from heaven go and get the people? Why the bull? I mean, the prophets were killed anyway. The false prophets, they were killed anyway. So, so why didn't the fire come down on the people? And it got me thinking, Luke chapter 9. Maybe you remember this account, Jesus. He's with his disciples. And they're walking and they're going through Samaria. And they need a place to stay and get provisions. And so they go send someone ahead to this town to, uh, hey, can, can we co- we're coming through or will you let us in? And basically the town said, no, you're not welcome here. You're going to the temple, you can't come here. And the word came back and James and John, two of the disciples, the sons of thunder, they got really mad and asked, I mean, they say there's no dumb questions. This was honestly probably one of them though. They said to Jesus, shall we call down fire on the people in the town of of that Samaritan town. Do you want us to do that, Jesus? I wonder if they thought of this story. 
this story about how, how God brought down fire. And of course, Jesus rebuked them. Because see, that wasn't even the point for this account either. The heart's desire was to restore the people of Israel back to God, but there's also something else going on here that we're remiss if we don't highlight. See, this event is a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus. You see, in your next and last fill in the blank, Jesus is that sacrifice. He is that sacrifice. See, Jesus didn't come to call down fire from heaven. He didn't come in judgment. That's not why he came. He didn't come to call down fire in judgment. He came to be the sacrifice that received the fire of judgment. That's who he is, and that's why he came. See, Jesus went uh, to Mount Calvary, and he took the fire of God's wrath. He became the sacrifice on our behalf, the fire of judgment that came down. And the thing is, every other religion except Christianity, except Jesus, is personified by the scene we see with the Baal worshipers. Because every other religion says to, to get right with God or to get God's attention in any way, you need to dance. You need to yell. Maybe even slash yourself. Do, do, do. Achieve, improve. Earn the mark, earn his love. And that picture of this scene of the fervency of them doing that, and yet there was no response. And yet we see something so different here as Elijah steps forward because Jesus is the one, he was slashed for you. He bled for you. He was laid on the altar that we call a cross for you. He became the sacrifice for you. He took the judgment, the fire from heaven metaphorically on that cross as he took our sins, yours and mine, on himself in that scene on the cross, paying our sin penalty. This scene is a picture of the gospel, the gospel of Christ, the gospel that all of us need to come both to terms with and hopefully receive, understanding who we are and who he is and coming to a place where we trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You trust in Jesus to be that person he was sacrificed for us. So I'd like to invite the worship team up because what we're gonna do here, we sort of flipped our service a little bit because we wanna take some time. I hope that in a scene like this and just beholding the power of God, the goodness of God, the endless pursuit of God, he never gave up on Israel, ever. Even in their darkest moments and their most rebellious season, he still is pursuing them and trying to win their heart back because that's who he is. That is your loving father who will always love you and pursue you. And I hope this whole scene leaves you with a sense of awe, awe of who he is. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna worship. We're gonna close and worship. And I hope during this time that you, I mean, yeah, sing, but sing with all your heart. Worship him, Jesus, because he's true. He's not Lord because we hope he's Lord and we prefer him to be Lord. He is Lord. Worship him because he's true. Worship him, Jesus, because he took your sin debt, your sin penalty. Worship because he left the throne room of heaven and came down to give his life for you. Worship Jesus because 
he's worthy. Not because circumstances are good. Make a decision, especially if you're here this morning and life is hard, you're going through something really challenging and chances are all of us walk in the room with something. But that you make a decision to say, I will worship you because of you, no matter the outcome of what I'm going through. You are worthy. You are worthy to be praised no matter if this turns out for good or this hurts a lot. I will praise you. And make a commitment that, yes, we're going to worship here with all our hearts. But will you also commit that when you leave here today, you will choose to worship him, not only in here with all your heart, but out there with all your heart. To love him, to live for him, to make your private devotion a public display. People are watching. People need to see and people need to know, don't they? Let's be a little bit like Elijah. It doesn't matter. It might feel like in culture today, the odds are 850 to one. It doesn't matter. Be the one. Keep your eyes fixed on the one and live for an audience of one. Would you pray with me? And then we're gonna stand and worship as we close this morning. Father, we thank you for a, a scene like this that is, it is powerful. It's, it's incredible and it's, it's amazing to see you show up in those powerful ways. As we're going to see next week, though, you don't just show up in the powerful ways. You show up in the quiet moments, too. I pray for each person here watching online and here on campus that, that we would choose today and we would choose tomorrow 